This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, this is Mark. There are a lot of reasons to get angry these days, but I prefer to focus on the positive things that we each can do to make this world a better place. The book Building a Better World in Your Backyard, Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys, is a great resource for just that. Instead of throwing my arms up in frustration at governments or big corporations, there's a list of ideas that we each can tackle to affect change. Information about this book and other resources can be found at permies.com. Okay, we're recording. Is it happening? Is it on? Should be happening. Okay. All right. I see a red dot. That must be it. Okay. I'm here with Alan Booker. We're going to, uh, to try to, to, uh, talk about another section of the big black book. Uh, today we're going to talk about section 2.4. So this is a designer, designer's manual, permaculture designer's manual by Bill Mollison. And, um, there is no audio book. So this will, this recording, this, this selection of, of podcasts reviewing the book, uh, Page by page is going to have to be the closest thing to an audiobook ever. I don't, I don't think this would actually do well as an audiobook. No, I don't think so. But I think as always when we've done these recordings, um, I'd like to encourage everybody to go out and buy a copy of the book. Um, you know, to have, I think, I mean, there's, there's some richness in some of the verbiage that Bill Mollison puts in there that, you know, you just need to savor yourself. Yeah, and as always, we're going to try to be respectful to the copyright and um, and read into this podcast less than ten percent of what is printed. And so, um, uh, I have not uh, attempted to ask for permission to do this, but I don't think we have to. I think we're well under fair use if we keep it under ten percent. Uh, yeah. But I do know that here in the United States, that uh, the books are being printed here in the United States now. And yeah. that I think it's like $65 plus shipping. And I, I know that every once in a while, um, Bill Mollison's daughter contacts us and gives, gives permies like a discount. Like if you go to their website and you put in this special code, then you get this discount. And I can't remember what, how much the discount is or what the code is, but it's, it's, uh, usually on permies and it's usually like temporary. Like we'll send out an email on the daily-ish email and let everybody know about the discount. And then, um, it's good for like, I don't know, a few weeks or something. So if you're on the daily-ish email, you probably currently own a copy of the book because you exercise that option. Mm-hmm. Um, and permies, we don't, we don't get a penny of that. Uh, but, uh, um, I'm more, more power to, um, you know, Bill's daughter to, to be able to continue to do this. All right. Um, I do have one thing I want to sneak in at the very beginning and of this podcast. And, uh, and I think that the people who are here to hear about, um, the big black book are going to appreciate this. And that is that, uh, we recorded you doing a webinar a few days ago. And by the way, it was, it was really excellent. I, um, uh, I'm now making plans on how to change so many things that we do based upon building on your webinar. Um, Thank you. uh, and, and, and trying to uh, get Bo to get the page put together. Um, he's like, well, I'm waiting for the slides from Alan. And so if you could get those slides over to Bo, that would be nice. Yeah, um, on my list but, <laughs> but basically, uh, while that webinar is going to sound like off 
off topic. I'm going to grab a piece of it, which brings it back on topic. So the webinar was uh, um, uh, carbon negative mass heaters, which is a framework definition and certain components can fit within the definition. And at this time, a rocket mass heater could fit inside the definition, provided that it met certain requirements and there were other things in place. It could be a piece of a carbon negative mass heater. Yes. But, and, and so and clear, this is a framework that I have been creating within my work uh, with others in the professional built environment. Um, so if you go trying to look it up, you're, you're going to find that I, it's still being defined and I'm, I'm working on it right now. And, and, uh, and of course I've already uh, cracked the whip in your general direction saying I need the white paper I need. And then I'm, I'm having Bo try to reconstruct what'll get us by until your white paper comes out. Yep. Um, and I understand it will be a while because, you know, you're spread mighty thin. And, uh, but the thing I want, I want to bring up right now is, um, one of the things that you said was part of this definition is that it must be biophilic. Now, um, I love this word. I, I wish to say the word over and over and over and over again a thousand times so it becomes less of a $10 college word and more a part of our standard vocabulary. Does that make sense? It is a Harvard word, quite literally, if I remember correctly. And what I mean by that is that what was called the biophilic hypothesis was originally brought out by the uh, sociobiologist Edward O. Wilson, who, if I remember correctly, was a professor at Harvard, I do believe. I think he's the one that either coined the word or picked it up and popularized it in the first place. And it literally, biophilia literally means love of life. But the biophilia hypothesis that Edward O. Wilson put forward was basically that humans are co-evolved and co-adapted with nature and that therefore there is a deep um, interrelationship between humans and the rest of the natural world, and that when humans are isolated from the natural world, that that is to their own profound detriment, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and so forth. And um, that, of course, led people to the observation that a lot of the ways that we're building civilization today is profoundly isolated. And so that brought another uh, gentleman, um, Stephen R. Kellert, to propose the idea of biophilic design. And that is designing um, our technological environment in such a way that it takes our need for deep nature connection into consideration and that it allows and facilitates that deep connection to the natural world around us. Um, and that is uh, sensory. That is uh, our brains work very differently when we're looking at hearing, smelling, tasting nature than it does when it, when we are looking at smelling, tasting, hearing, 
like mechanical noises, um, simplified building shapes, um, so on and so forth. Um, and that, um, that, that, that is very hard science behind that now. This is no longer just a hypothesis. There's now quite a bit of hard science on this showing, for example, that when you put, um, patients in a hospital who are recovering from a surgery, um, in a room that merely has a good view of nature versus a room whose view out the window is a brick wall, that the people who have the good view recover faster, have less pain, so on and so forth, um, that students put into a biophilic classroom have much superior learning outcomes, and uh, they were even monitored biometrically with um, galvanic skin response and other you know, stress indicators showing that they had less stress um, and that they retained the information better and they learned better. So this is no longer just sort of a hand-waving, uh, you know, sort of hippie idea that, oh, wouldn't it be nice if um, our um, if our buildings connect us with nature a little bit more? That, that sounds that just sounds nice. No, we're we're actually now down to the point where there are peer-reviewed uh, scientific papers published in the literature showing tremendous advantages in productivity and health mental acuity and so forth when we incorporate biophilic design into buildings. So that's the short form definition of biophilia and biophilic design. I think that my understanding of biophilia, bio, biophilic design um, is, is that it isn't that the thing that I like about it the most, which kind of aligns well with nature is that it is not, Boolean. It is a spectrum. Yep. And that what all of it suggests is like you don't say it is now biophilic. It is, it is always that one is more biophilic than that one. Like it's not saying that it's like it's a, it is a destination. Yep. It is more like, um, uh, and, and there could be many flavors of biophilic. This one is clearly, you know, quite biophilic. And, um, this other one is also quite biophilic, although they are completely different. And so it's not that things, I mean, if, I guess if you were to say that is biophilic, it's like saying, um, uh, that smells nice. Yep. Um, it's, it's, it's something where it's like if something were to wear this attribute, it's not saying that this is an absolute. It is saying that it is one possible description, one possible explanation. I think that the pursuit of permaculture is, um, Similar to the pursuit pursuit of biophilia, is that it? would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I, by the way, I mentioned just and the reason we brought this up when I was talking about you know rocket mass heaters and carbon negative mass heaters was I was kind of observing that there is a biophilic attribute to heating with fire in that 
that is, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the polar opposite of set the thermostat on the wall and forget it. Um, which has this tendency, if you stay in buildings like most people do today, well over 90% of their time has a tendency to disconnect you from the cycles of the natural world going on outside. Um, and of course it's can be very energy consumptive as well, but you know, it's, it's like when you are heating with fire, there's something very primal about that interaction with the fire, with, um, the, the, the heat coming off of the fire and, and the, the thing of, of building and maintaining that and, um, and being aware of the temperature outside and in, engaging with it. And, um, so it's got a dimension in that direction, um, of biophilia, um, and, um, being in a space that is not just static, that stays exactly the same temperature all the time, but one, a space that, um, actually moves around its temperature, which is important for us. It's a kind of stimulation that stimulates our, us as a physical, biological organism to, um, respond and it creates, uh, healthy, um, adaptation. Well, we could go into that in a bunch. I won't go into it. It has to do with like, uh, what are, what are called, um, you know, what's called adaptation of, uh, around homeostasis. You know, we're trying to maintain homeostasis and we're kept in a static environment. Then we tend to atrophy. We need, uh, low levels of stimulation, uh, by, um, our environment changing for our bodies to, uh, get what's called a hermesis response. Um, and, uh, that's part of keeping us optimally healthy, uh, physically and, uh, and, and mentally. I think there's also something to be said for, like, for a rocket mass here. Like I, I went outside and I dug a hole and I dug up clay and then I dug a different hole and I dug up sand. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so there's all this thing about like, uh, I, like most of this, 95% of this thing is stuff that I went and dug out of the ground. And then um a lot of it is where uh um the branches fell off the tree and I put it in a box and then I saved it. It was the the branches that fell off the tree were precious to me in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. And they they were not a waste. They weren't something that I put into the garbage can to have it hauled to the dump, which is what's often the case for, for a lot of homeowners. But it was, it was savored to me. It was precious to me and I saved it and I used it. And, um, but it's like a mini split and it, and it's cause that was, that's an, another topic I don't really want to get into, but I, um, I went out, uh, on, onto social media and I tried to say, you know, rocket mass eaters and I got bombarded by corporate trolls. And, um, there were some people that were asking good questions along the way before the corporate trolls showed up. And, um, but, but they were so emphatic that, um, many splits are the answer to all energy things everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, so, um, a mini split is going to save you. My understanding is, it will heat your home with 30% less energy than if you were to use baseboard heaters. 
which is certainly an improvement, but I don't know if it's such an improvement that it's going to, um, it's, it's worthy of this much praise. But the other thing is, is that it's kind of like, and it, it is indeed a fascinating contraption. And, uh, but it is, it is a contraption that you buy for $2,000, $2,500. And if you're going to have it professionally installed, it's going to cost you probably a thousand and, um, possibly more. Uh, and then it requires, uh, professional maintenance every year. And mm-hmm. some even say twice a year or else if you don't have this professional maintenance, it will void the warranty. But it's, uh, it is, it is, um, it is a fascinating piece of technology that is run by electricity. Now, that's another thing too, is like, we will use a rocket mass heater and we will gather those sticks. We could even drop a tree and put up enough wood to fuel the rocket mass heater for several years. Um, and these are our, our choices. How much of a relationship do we wish to have with our woodland? We may want to leave that tree to be for wildlife, or we might have other uses for that tree. But these are the paths that are open to us. Versus, um, and I would say the number one way that we get electricity right now, and I, I'd be open to hearing what you say, in the United States, is the number one way that we get electricity. Is it, I think right now it's natural gas generation. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I think oh, that's what it is. Considerably and natural gas generation has uh, taken on a lot of baseload in a lot of areas. Yeah. So I think it's natural gas. I mean, granted there's getting to be diversity. There's going to be more renewable energy and things of that nature. And, uh, but, but I think natural gas has come way up in the last 20 years. Well, people would and, be very surprised how little, um, of baseload that renewables is, uh, actually handling in the United States right now. It's, it's a very small percentage. So there's been a lot of press about renewables, but if you look at, the percentage of generation is actually quite small still. I am. Um, <clears throat> uh, I I don't I don't know if I've ever shared this in a podcast before, but when I was a young man, I worked for the Northwest Power Planning Council as a lowly librarian, and um. I, the, the important thing with that is, is that I got to see all these documents coming in talking about many, many, many different things as people wanted to say their piece to the council. And so I documented it all and stored it all and made it so it could all be looked up again and, and stuff like that. Um, but I read a lot of it. At the same time, I got, uh, those of us that worked as peons in the office we talked about what the council members were talking about and and the thing that was a total joke because it's pretty obvious because they got to figure out what whether what's the next power plant going to be is it going to be another nuclear power plant are we going to dam up another river um and and i got to tell you hydro is a major environmental disaster oh yeah People call it renewable, and it's true. It is 
totally renewable and micro hydro is only about a thousand times better. Yep. But full hydro, you got your silt building up behind the dam and um, those turbines are kind of like fish blenders set to puree. And so the life in those rivers, that's what we're talking about. Biophilia, life. And what is, what, this is a metric that could be applied to a hydroelectric dam. Does that seem like it's raping nature or does that seem like we're living in a symbiotic relationship with nature? But, yeah, but yeah. back to the thing that was the joke at the Northwest Power Planning Council mm-hmm. is that it's kind of like, okay, power usage is going up 7% every year. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we've got to meet this need. And, and, and if, by the way, if you do the math, you're doubling load every 10 years. And so we got to, what, what are the plans? And of course, there's all kinds of people advocating, like, do my thing, do my thing, do my thing. And, and at the same time, it's like, uh, how to, how to keep the cost per kilowatt, kilowatt hour low for the consumer. And, um, and so they're, they're trying to juggle all these different things and figure out what's going to be the thing. Cause they're looking 10, 20, 30 years into the future to figure out like, how are we going to meet these needs? And the joke is conservation because the Northwest Power Planning Council puts a lot into trying to persuade communities to conserve, to, cause if they can convince people to cut back 7% per year, then, then it will, like, will reach stasis, right? It'll, we won't have to add a nuclear power plant. And the thing that makes it a joke is it doesn't matter how much information is put out there. People just don't do it. Like they either don't read the materials that are put out or they don't care or whatever. Now, then there's the whole idea of like, we will have each energy company write to all of the people consuming energy and share this information, which sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And, and it's still kind of falling on deaf ears. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land, but don't know where to start? Do you have a world changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul-versation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. So you, you've, you've got about three things deep in my stack to respond to now. Okay. I'm, I'm going to try and, and, and that stuck with me. Yeah. And a big part of everything that I do is about that pathetic joke. And, and I can't seem to stop myself and and it's like um can i paint a picture that is beautiful that is so beautiful that everybody wants to live this way 
And then when they do live this way, they find that their energy footprint is one-tenth of what it was before. And um, on along the way, it solved all these global problems. This is how I live my life. And And Mr. Booker, sir, you are one of the few people that are the most observant about how I live my life. Um, uh, trying to persuade, trying to convince, trying to paint this picture. I believe you too are working hard to try to paint this picture. It's a very similar yet different picture. Yep. Um, how, and it's kind of like, uh, I think we're making, you and I are making a hundred times more progress than the Northwest Power Planning Council. However, the reason we're making progress is our audience is interested in the picture. I think there's that, and I think there's also the fact that we're attacking it at the level of narrative. That's That's critically important. So... To make a couple of quick observations. One of the, the things that I was thinking about and chuckling about when you were talking about conservation is what's known as the Jevons paradox. Um, and I teach, I talk about that in some depth when we get uh, in my introduction to return to design course that we've been doing. Um, it, it, and it came from um, a gentleman in the 1800s who observed that the more efficiently that you learned to use coal, the more of it ended up being used. And uh, it's called Jevons Paradox. Um, it's like, well, of course, because what's happening is it becomes more and more cost-effective, right? So um, he was he was thinking, oh, well, we'll come up with more, we'll come up with ways to conserve coal. We'll be able to use coal more efficiently, and therefore the use of coal will go down. But when they created these ways of using coal more efficiently, the use of coal went up because there was now more incentive to use it. It was more economic and, and you got, so it drove the consumption up. So simply looking at conservation without changing the way people underlying their underlying relationship to the world actually will do the opposite in many cases of what you thought you were going to do. Cause they're like, Oh, look, uh, our costs went down. So therefore we can now afford to use more. That's, that is exactly like that whole thing about, um, how there was some sort of problem in an area with a certain kind of snake. Yep. And so the government started paying people to bring in the, the dead snakes. Yep. And so people started breeding the snakes. Right. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, this is very similar to what they started finding out in highway safety, which was that human beings, um, it, it tip, an individual tends to have a certain amount of risk tolerance. And so if you make cars more safe, it doesn't mean that they're safer. It means that they will take more risks. And, um, so, you know, so it's the same thing. The Jevons paradox is if they continue to, if they continue not to have the mindset of engaging with the natural world around them and you give people a resource that is more efficient, then they will tend to be able to say, well, hey, I'm used to spending this much on the thing every month, so I can use more of it, more for me, right? And um, so you have to you have to engage um, people with 
basically their relationship and the narrative and the way they look at it, which brings me back to biophilia again, because Mm -hmm. this is the second thing I wanted to mention. When you told the story of the rocket mass heater, which was going out and digging up the sand and the clay and the materials and putting it together, that is the story of building a relationship with your place and with the natural world. And so, yes, from a biophilic design standpoint, now the materials that are making up the rocket mass heater are biophilic. They are natural materials. When you see them, when you touch them and feel them, they're tactile and visual stimulus you're getting in is natural, right? If you have a beautiful um, you know, stone um, heat dissipation surface top of your pebble style rocket mass heater, same thing. These are natural materials, biophilic materials. But what's happening is in that moment, as you are going out and collecting the wood and having a relationship with the trees, right, and a relationship with the materials, and you're putting it together and you're bringing it in, you're preparing it and you're burning it, all of a sudden you have a relationship, and that relationship has changed the way you process the use of resources in your mind. Now all of a sudden the resource is something that you have a relationship with, not an abstract idea about coal mines somewhere off in the distance that you've never seen. You never see that. You never interact with that. The fact that what you are doing is causing more environmental destruction is out of sight and out of mind. And therefore, it's very difficult to get you to, I mean, there are people who, yes, can engage with that and and bear that in mind moment by moment. Most people cannot. It's it's so abstract and so removed that it's, it's very difficult for them to um, to process that. And and so we're talking about part of the whole idea behind biophilic design is re-engagement with the world that you live in, right? And it is multidimensional. One of the dimensions, of course, is it's healthier for you in many, many ways. But the other dimension to it is that it is a re-engagement with the living ecosystems that are supporting you and providing the, the resources that support your life. And so if you're not engaged with that, if you are disengaged, if you're inside of a house with a thermostat and that, that allows you to not build that relationship, then getting you to conserve energy is, well, that's just hard. You know, it's, because it, it's not, your, your mindset is not going to change. Um, Last little thing I want to say was on my little key was about the dams that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, part of the reason that that hit for me was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, doing a course in fluvial geomorphology with Dr. Dave Rosgen, um, who is um, one of the pioneers in what's called natural channel design. That is restoring rivers and streams to their natural harmonic flows. And uh, we were discussing that and going through all of that in very in very great detail, which is like all of the problems that damming up larger water flows uh, creates. And so for those who are into the hydrological side, my rule of thumb is, and Dr. Rosgen absolutely agreed after 57 years in this field, never dam up an order three flow or larger. Um, it's always a disaster if you dam up an order three flow or larger. Um, and what happens is you get cascading, um, 
problems in the watershed. So you said that, you know, hydroelectric from large dams was uh, renewable. In my mind, it's short-term renewable, but long-term not renewable. And the reason for that is when we go in and we start to dam up these large water courses, um, we begin to impair the hydrological cycle. And we get a slow um, destruction of the local hydrological cycles. It's not an accident that all of these huge rivers that have been dammed up have slowly been experiencing more and more in the way of drought. Um, because we're doing two things. We're deforesting um, around the rivers, which, of course, is take, turning off the hydrological, biological pump that pumps the water back from the oceans up into the middle of continents. And um, it creates a dehydrating uh, effect on the broader landscape. And then we began to create sedimentation issues and all the other issues with the rivers. And we start to just really uh, have a death spiral on a lot of these watersheds. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, where we're going to hit, if we want to be renewable about anything over the long term, is we're going to have to continue removing these large-scale dams. Uh, we need to make it a general rule of thumb that we remove all dams from order-free flows or larger, and that, yes, we can use microhydro. That's great stuff. However, um, our rule of thumb should be that we uh, always try to divert less than a third of the water flow um, from a order one or order two water course um, so that we maintain the hydrological continuity uh, for the biological systems, because streams and creeks are biological systems in addition to hydrological systems. And if we try to divert the whole stream or even the vast majority of it through uh, microhydro, we get into a situation where the biological systems are significantly impaired. So that was my third little point that you had poked uh, from from what you had said. So with biophilic, and and when we're talking about heat, yeah. then um, I'm kind of thinking about natural gas. Yeah. Uh, it has to be harvested, and and it's very. I, I doubt. I, I think it's going to be extremely rare that a person's going to harvest natural gas from their homestead or from their urban lot. That's um, it's plausible, but very very rare. Um, so uh, we put in um, methane biodigesters in a couple places in a way that's renewable. What you're doing is you are – so natural gas, the way it's delivered, is uh, about 95% methane-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do methane biodigesters, the product coming out is typically 60 to 70% according to how – methane, according to how you uh, have set up the digester. So it's a form of it's it's a it's a methane product, but it's not at the same level of refinement right. that natural gas is. And the interesting thing is that because it's at that lower level, it does not have the same flashover potential. In other words, 95% methane uh, coming out of a orifice has a flashover potential that's much higher than um, uh, methane from a biodigester. So methane biodigesters are much safer. So the only place that you're going to engage on a homestead level with, quote, unquote, natural gas, not really natural gas, but 
methane as a fuel is if you're doing a methane biodigester, which can be done in a sustainable and regenerative way at a small scale by taking biomass that otherwise would have decomposed anaerobically and putting it into a biodigester, capturing the methane and combusting it. So I am doing that in a few places, uh, and it is uh, a very valid option, and it is very, very different in its dynamics than using natural gas that is coming from um, hydrocarbon deposits that are mined from underground. So I always call that biogas. Yep. And I I would discuss it in a very different way than natural gas. Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, I do think, but it's very different. Yeah. There are some people where there is natural gas coming to the surface on their property and they could, they could cap that and use it. Um, and what I'm trying to say is very, very rare. Yes. Um, and, uh, there's, it, it could even happen in an urban lot. Uh, again, very rare. Right. Um, but it, it, it does happen. And it, but the, the, the stuff that most people use, professionals went in and then they got access to it and they may have done some naughty things to get to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and so then it's piped to your house. And the thing that's been very massive in the last six months that, uh, has come up is that the amount that is leaked en route to you is far bigger than we ever imagined. Yep. And, uh, it's so embarrassing to these companies that they are scrambling to distract you from looking in that general direction. <laughs> and so, um, the, the, the place I was going about 20 minutes ago was to say, okay, we can have natural gas heat, which comes in a pipe to your house. And then there's also electricity is dominantly at this point, like the most popular form is, is natural gas generated electricity, uh, which then comes through a wire. Um, and, uh, uh, so, so natural gas. And, and then we're trying to talk about what does biophilic mean when we're talking about heat? And it's like, so, and, and one of the, and, and the thing I wanted to kind of put out there, because of course we're saying, well, it's when you're burning wood, it's just better. And, and it's like some people could argue it back and forth one way or another. But the one thing I kind of came up with for me, I came to permaculture through gardening. I got obsessed with gardening and then it, it brought me to permaculture and the Wafati design. To me is like the ultimate, you know, gardener's home. Um, because you can garden more with a wafati than you can with any other home design that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would have to say the same goes for how you heat your home. When you heat your home with wood, you're heating your home as a gardener. I have. I have gardened and produced a way to heat my home mm-hmm. as, and, and to me that has a gardening relationship with how I live my life. Yep. As opposed to this pipe that comes to me and, um, 
if I take this stuff that was mine and it was locked up, it was sequestered carbon, it was sequestered pollution, mm-hmm. it, it was this this toxin that was sequestered, and it was buried down in a place where it would be less than biophilic for me to go get it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, it is, it is, I, one might say it is unnatural to go get it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm developing a rich gardener's life. I am living through a plethora of life. I am engaging in the natural carbon cycle by picking up those sticks and setting them aside and drying them and then using them to heat my home through the winter. And then the next thing is, is that if I'm heating with a rocket mass heater instead of heating with a conventional wood stove, then I need only one-tenth of the sticks. It seems like it's being more respectful to nature to be able to get the heat with one-tenth of the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I kind of – and that's kind of part of where I'm at with permaculture and gardening is it's like I wish to be – I wish to, to live a, in a – symbiotic, romantic relationship with nature. And if I'm not going to use this wood to heat myself, I will use it in my hugel culture, or I will build beautiful things out of it. This is my relationship with my woodland and my relationship with my gardens, as opposed to being part, like like giving money to the people that are effectively, arguably raping the planet. And so it's kind of like whether you heat your home with electricity or with natural gas, you are contributing to that monster. Now I'm saying I still contribute to that monster, but I believe I am currently contributing one-tenth of what is the American average. And I'm also, it's one-tenth than what I used to do when I worked for the Northwest Power Planning Council. It's like, at the time, I'm, I'm kind of like, how can I use less energy? And I did. I found ways to use less energy because I could see that conversa- conservation was so important. And yet, I was struggling to find ways to do conservation. And it's like, so it's... And hell, in the offices of the Northwest Power Planning Council, mm-hmm. um, uh, we still used a, you know, probably only slightly less than the average amount of electricity used by similar offices. Yeah, you said you said you said the magic word. You said it was carbon cycle, right? And when I went through all the numbers in the carbon negative mass heater thing, um, we kind of looked at those in, in numericals. Like, here's what I'm going to say. I think, Paul, that you're less than a tenth. And here's the reason. Um, you called it right. You're, you are actually surfing the carbon cycle with the way you are gardening your wood and using it. 
In other words, you are simply getting an extra use out of carbon moving through the natural carbon cycle. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's closed cycle, and you are camping in that cycle. Therefore, you are not adding net to the carbon in the atmosphere, for example. However, when you are extracting a fossil fuel, that is, by definition, an open cycle um, extraction. You're taking something that was statically sequestered, and you're releasing it into the atmosphere. So if you are, um, you know, gardening your your forest and you are using some small part of that, um, then the carbon that you are releasing into the atmosphere is carbon that was just pulled out of the atmosphere um, by the, the tree in its production. And as a result, like I said, you're just camping into what I call the dynamic carbon sequestration cycle um, and getting an extra use out of it in the process. So that's where we were looking at that even in in a case where you're doing um, wood combustion highly effectively and efficiently, we were talking about, you're if you're doing it with any kind of consideration, you're probably at least carbon neutral. And, of course, I was showing ways you could do even better than that and go very highly carbon negative. Um, right, right. So I would say, that, like I said, less than a tenth. I think you're at zero. I think your your net carbon from your heating is zero because of the way you're doing it. Um, and we can show that rigorous, like I said, in the in the when we ran the numbers, we showed the exact carbon cycle. And I worked with a world class carbon combustion chemist to actually run the numbers and show what we're talking about rigorously and quantitatively. So I I want to I want to add in real quick that the things that I advocate for 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 people including myself I want everybody to live a more luxuriant life. So wherever you are in your life I want everybody to pursue a life that is has even more luxury more money in your pocket so then your life ends up being less expensive maybe it even adds money to your pockets while at the same time adding in a uh, more and more each year more of a biophilic element to give your life substance and um delight as opposed to grayness and meaningless. I want to be a soul building life. I want everybody to have a soul building life. And, and so by all means have the mini split, you know, go ahead and do that. And then each day where you feel like building a fire in your rocket mass heater, go ahead and do that. And then your mini split won't run. It won't have anything to do. The thermostat that is inside of it never turned it on. And then I wish to go so far as to say, how about living in community? And then you've got a bunch of different people who each in their own time like to keep the fire going uh, for their own biophilic reasons because it feeds their soul. Yeah. And, and then the, the next thing you know, you got to the end of winter and that mini split never came on even once. Yep. And so uh, 
there's a the building that we're working on um, for the indigenous community in central Alabama, one of them. Um, we have a geothermal HVAC system because this building is large enough that you're not talking a mini split anymore, but you're it's it's you know, same concept. You're talking about mechanical HVAC system. Yeah. Uh, mini splits for smaller spaces. This is a large community space. Um, and um, the, the the approach that we took there was we put two 8-inch rocket mass heaters in the space, but the mini split is set up so that in the sun, excuse me, the, 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 not mini split, the geothermal HVAC is set up so that it does the cooling in the summertime when the solar panels on the roof, so when the sun is beating down on the roof, right, that's when it's the hottest, mm-hmm. and that's when we have the most power coming straight out of the solar panels, going straight in to run the geothermal HVAC and keep the building cool. In the wintertime, the strategy is to set the thermostat at 50 degrees. And um, then if it just so happens that nobody's in the building for a little while um, and therefore there's nobody uh, running the fire, it does keep uh, the building from freezing, the pipes from freezing, and so on and so forth. But uh, when the community is in the building using the building, then the rocket mass heaters are the way that the heat is provided. And then... Um, what's going on is the mechanical HVAC is just used to provide a little bit of ventilation that is to help move fresh air when necessary. Um, so it's no longer being used to generate heat through a, you know, a heat pump with the geothermal, uh, hydraulic loop, but instead it's merely being used to help with, um, ventilation to keep, uh, fresh air moving through the space. Much, much okay. lower energy footprint. This podcast is continued in part two. Hi, this is Mark. Sometimes talking to a friend or family member about permaculture can be met with a blank stare if it's all new to them. A great way to explain some of it can be over a card game using permaculture playing cards, which each have interesting facts with quality illustrations and descriptions. A wide range of people, places, and things, all related to permaculture, can be found on the permaculture playing cards at richsoil.com forward slash cards.